News Talk 1110 wbt The Pete Callender Show. I am the Pete of said show. 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110 are the phone numbers if you want to participate uh, on this first day of school in Charlotte-Mecklenburg, but also many other districts around the state. Uh, a lot of others started last week, uh, but now everybody is back. The buses are rolling. Remember, do not pass the stopped school buses, people. Just don't do it. Although, if people keep doing it, they may have there may be more of an appetite for my idea, which is uh, to have an arm come out from the side of the bus and spray paint anybody that tries to pass. Then your car would get spray painted, and we could identify the jerks on the roads. You know, stuff like that. Uh, traffic is going to be a little bit messy all around the schools, especially first day, first week, where everybody wants to drop the kid off for the first day of school. So, uh, you know. Just have some patience. It's going to take a while and then maybe find an alternate route. Um, so there's that. But, yes, happy first day of school. Oh, and also, Pete at the Pete Callender Show dot com is the email. Pete at the Pete Callender Show dot com or Twitter is at Pete Callender. So uh, I am focused a lot on the education issue today because of the school. You know, it's topical. You know, you ripped from the headlines. Dun, dun, like law and order. So uh, this came. Uh, yeah, this story came out of the Washington Examiner. It's actually a couple weeks ago. But uh, my friend Ed, he gives me his copies when he's done using them. And um, and so I, I was reading through this one article, and I had not heard of this before. And I, I do follow education policy uh, pretty closely. I'm not super, super knowledgeable about it all. But, I, I mean, I did cover Charlotte-Mecklenburg schools as a reporter for a decade. So, uh, you know, I've been following state education issues for almost 20 or over 20 years now. So I've, you know, it's a, it's an area of interest for me because so many people send their kids to K twelve schools. I mean, it's it we order our lives around this monopoly, where we buy homes, what our homes are worth, what jobs we can take, where they are, how long of a commute you're willing to sit through in order to be in a school district that provides a good education for your kid, and that commute is what, that's your life, right? That's time. That's time. That's a unit of your life that you are spending in a car that you're sacrificing so your kid can have a better education, right? So, so many of our decisions are built around this K-12 government monopoly model. I was unaware of the growing movement to restore classical education. Aristotle, Socrates, Homer. This is from a piece... By Jeremiah Puff, talking about the centuries-old works belonging to the so-called Western canon eventually fell out of use in most classrooms. School curricula evolved, and new, faddish pedagogies came into vogue, with classrooms and textbooks eventually replacing a wide range of original texts, particularly those belonging to the dead white men. These had been mandatory reading for most students for a very long time. The deep study of primary sources has, in general, been greatly diminished in contemporary education in favor of reading strategies and learning concepts. What is now commonly referred to as classical or liberal arts education has been relegated to a handful of predominantly religious private schools. But this old form of schooling is experiencing a rebirth of sorts. While public schools and even a lot of private schools have found themselves embroiled in controversies over critical race theory and uh, radical gender theory, coronavirus mandates, 
virtual learning. There's been this cohort of classical schools, primarily Catholic or evangelical Christian, but even some charter schools that have now seen a steady trend of growth going back to the early 2000s. Undergirding this classical restoration is a fundamentally different approach to the purpose of education. Listen to this. This is why I, I, this is one of the reasons why I also talk a lot about education policy and issues. Because education, it's, it, it's about more than you know, getting people ready for the job market and all that. It, it's, a, it's about more than. It's why the critical race theory story, this, uh, this issue, it's why it has sparked so much response. It's why it galvanized so many people is because we all understand that education is more than just the three R's even though our K-12 monopoly doesn't really do a great job of, you know, of imparting that knowledge. But it is more than that. The purpose is to teach the next generation about what we are as a society, right? And when people uh, with the critical race theory stuff, it's why, oh, you don't want to teach history. Oh, on the contrary, I want, I want people to know history. But the question is, what history? And if you're going to give them only a single lens through which to view all history and in the critical race theorists mind they want it all to be through race or gender right through radical gender theory they they want everything through those lenses why so they can rebuild the society this gets back to the gramsci and long march through the institutions there is a larger uh there's a larger play here but listen to this. This is Jeremy Tate, the founder and the CEO of Classical Learning Test, or CLT, which to me, I mean, if Charlotte doesn't do something with the CLT, I'm just thinking marketing opportunity wasted. Come on. Anyway, they're a major power player in the movement to restore classical education. Jeremy Tate founded the CLT in 2015 as a classically oriented alternative to the SAT and the ACT college entrance exams. Education properly understood, he said, is the formation of the individual in the social conscience. G.K. Chesterton articulates so well this vision of education being the soul of a society as it passes from one generation to the next. But suddenly, there was nothing we were passing down. Everything had been dismantled or deconstructed, and there was nothing beautiful or meaningful left to pass down to the next generation. And so the classical renewal movement is a beautiful movement to recover something precious that was almost lost. The CLT is meant to help encourage schools to adopt more classical curriculum, he says, because as a general rule, college entrance exams go a long way to dictating the coursework in schools. Precisely. I don't want to teach the test. At the end of the day, I hate that phrase. I now disavow everything this man is saying. Okay, I don't. But he says at the end of the day, whoever controls testing owns education. We believe at CLT that the tests ultimately do impact and drive the curriculum to some level. And so instead of reading the meaningless texts that the SAT and the ACT are putting in front of students, CLT has students reading George Washington. We have our students reading Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King Jr., Flannery O'Connor, Tolstoy, Augustine, texts that students would never see Otherwise, why? Because the lessons, the meaning, the beauty, they transcend all races, all ages. That's why they have value. That's why they endured. 
Why would you rob people now of that knowledge? Brian! Where'd you go? I was just going to get to... Brian was on the line. He was on hold. He'd come out of the break, and he hangs up. Killing me, man. That's all right. 704-570-1110. 1-800-WBT-1110. Classical education. There was one school I mentioned, or one uh, uh, series of tests, whatever. This is the CLT, the uh, Classical Learning Test, major power player in the movement to restore classical education. The Regent School of Austin, Texas. School headmaster there, a fellow by the name of Dan Peterson, says it's no longer a secret to parents that this classical renewal movement is happening. The goal of education should be wisdom and virtue and preparing citizens to pass on a culture from one generation to the next and less about just job training or getting test scores or achievement. If you have a good school, those things do happen, but the goal ought to be about something bigger. Longer term, more beautiful, the kind of human beings that we're cultivating. One of the other things is that it's a lifelong pursuit. The love of learning is a lifelong pursuit. I will tell you, K-12, I hated school. I did well, but I hated school. I did not enjoy it. I think it was because I was red-shirted. I w- yeah, I, because my birthday was uh, you know, too late in the year. And so my parents had the opportunity to send me, or they had a choice, to send me to the, uh, into the class, go to, you know, start kindergarten essentially uh, a, almost a year behind everybody, or start like a year ahead. And I was always, so I was always the first one, like school would start in September, and then I would have a birthday a couple months later, and then everybody else would have their birthdays throughout the rest of the year after me. But I was always the first one to turn uh, the older age. Had they read? Had they not redshirted me, I would have been the last one to get uh, to turn. You know, whatever age. You know, fifth grade I, you know, or uh, five years old in kindergarten. I would have been four for most of that school year. So they redshirted me, and I think just developmentally, I was a little bit ahead of my peers, and so I got bored, which is how I uh, developed my uh, my highly tuned sense of humor. As a class clown. Well, I mean, it's what you do when you're bored. And you have the Irish wit, as I do. <laughs> so you... Uh, yeah, you know. And the world is my straight man. It's just there's a lot of humor to be found in what people say. I've always felt like this. And, you know, when I'm in a classroom setting and there's only one person talking, I'm sorry, it's nothing personal. But uh, I, I'm just, you know, I only got one source of material I'm working with. So... <laughs> no, this is not a mea culpa for all of my years of uh, of dis- disruptive in class. That's what I would always get. He's a great student. He does well on all the tests and everything, uh, but he's disruptive and he speaks at inappropriate times. Yeah, which I have parlayed uh, to into a successful career. So uh, this guy Peterson, Dan Peterson, the headmaster at the uh, Regent School of Austin, he says... Part of cultivating that education, which is grounded in the writings of long-ago historical figures, is ensuring that the students learn to appreciate why the texts have endured and are considered valuable millennia after they were first published. 
Right? Why do some of the great works get that title? Why do people know of their stories? It's because they speak to something that is unifying, that we all can relate to to some degree. This gets back to like fundamental, you know, man versus man, man versus himself, man versus nature. Oh my gosh, Pete's using only the male pronoun. Like they're they're just themes. They're just story arc ideas, you know? And if you want to be a lifelong learner, there's nothing that stops you. And that's the problem is K-12, it, it tamps a lot of that down if it doesn't outright extinguish it. But in doing what I've been doing now for, which is kind of ironic because I so did not like going to K-12 school, but I so very much enjoyed being a reporter and I enjoy being a host, even though it means... I'm basically doing show prep. I mean, I'm creating and I'm reading all day long. ABP, man, always be prepping. I'm reading all day long. I'm finding all sorts of stories. It's constant research. And every day I come in here, it's like getting on stage. So you have a performance, right? So I'm still doing school plays years later. Um, We're a character-forming place, he said, the headmaster at Regents. A character-forming place. And we're seeking to help students to pursue that which is true, good, and beautiful. What they realize is that uh, there's these ideas, this literature, this art, this music. It's beautiful. And by connecting with it, you're standing on others' shoulders. And you're playing a part of this beautiful history. What was it from uh, Dead Poet Society? You You may play a part. You are dispelling the notion that only new is better and that only now is better and anything old is not relevant. We're dispelling these notions. We long for a tradition and ideals and works and people and exemplars that can connect us. Now, we don't have to experiment on every new fad that comes around. There's a reason things last and are considered great. With a retrospective view of the past comes an aspirational view of the future, one that goes beyond the academic and career successes of students. Again, that's from the Washington Examiner. Uh, I forgot his name now. Poff. Jeremiah Poff, The Growing Movement to Restore Classical Education. This ties into another piece that I saw. This was written uh, about four days ago by uh, Noah. Oh, I always forget his last name. But he writes for his own substack. Oh, Noah Smith. No opinion is his substack. <laughs> no opinion. N-O-A-H, opinion. No opinion. And I had never heard of this before, but it's called the elite overproduction hypothesis. The elite overproduction hypothesis. Okay? And in a nutshell, it is we created too many people through the college system that expected to be part of the elites. And all that comes with that. So they have an expectation. And when the reality doesn't meet that expectation, they become unhappy socialists. We'll get into this theory. I, I find it very compelling. We're going to get into it in a minute. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. The elite overproduction hypothesis. Fascinating. I've never heard of this before. Uh, 
Elite overproduction has been cited as a root cause of political tension in the U.S., as so many well-educated millennials are either unemployed, underemployed, or otherwise not achieving the high status they expect. Even then, the nation continued to produce excess Ph.D. holders before the COVID-19 pandemic hit, especially in the humanities and social sciences for which employment prospects were dim. And what happens then? You have this huge cadre of kids coming out of college and they don't have any uh, prospects for employment. And they had an expectation that they were going to be part of the elite. They were going to be on the path, making lots of money already, and uh, now they're not. And that gap creates a disruptive population, much like me throughout my K-12 experience. (laughs) We'll get into more details here. Let me first get uh, Calvin on. Hello, Calvin. Welcome to the program. How are you? Well, I think this is the second time we've communicated since you came down from the mountain. How are you, sir? I'm well. Hope you are. I cannot. Com- well, I do complain. Usually, like three hours a day. You you know this. You hear me? I I do. I just don't. <laughs> um, well, you know, we've gone in different directions politically. How so? Um, well, I'm still a Republican. Uh, the rhinos are in charge. So. Who's the? Well, well, I haven't been a Republican since you've known me. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what his definition of republicanism is. Whose definition? I uh, I guess the media is right now. It appears that that, that the people who who claim to be Republicans don't know anything about it, and I just I'm kind of lost. Well, I will say I, my you know my definition of a Republican is anyone who's registered uh, anyone who's registered as a Republican. That's it. That's well, the, that's all it is you know, to me. It, it used to be. It used to be uh, about abortion, the gun rights, big business, um, law and order. Um, those were the essence of the Republican uh, platform. Sure, but they don't even have one of those anymore. So, well, the well, but I would yeah. So they the Republican Party was where conservative beliefs were most often found. I mean, and heck, you remember a long time ago, Dem- the Democratic Party used to have some conservative ideas, too. They used to share a lot of conservative ideas uh, with the Republicans. Once upon a, once upon a time yeah. when there was communication between the two. Yeah, so that's and that's why I say, like, I don't... My only definition that I work off of for Republican is, uh, and Democrat for that matter, it's why I use the term leftist. I use that on purpose because not all Democrats are leftists. So... No. Yeah, so, like, if you're just a registered Democrat, you're just a registered Republican, I don't know automatically what your views on every particular issue will be, but that's also part of the—that comes with the territory of being a political party. You're going to have people inside the party that disagree on various things. Absolutely. Both parties have always been out. Yeah. That's just the way—that's just the way it's supposed to be. Unfortunately, we've gone—taken a radical turn. Um I just yeah you know, I know where you know what the status is. I yeah you know, I'm glad you finally got back down here. Yeah, you know uh, I would I would love to. Uh, buy, we we got our house built now. We don't live where we used to live. I I wish you could come out again. We can make that happen. We, we could sit down and 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 communicate without um without fear of. Um, violating some FCC thing. But well, that's gen- that's on that's that's on you, Calvin. That's yeah, that that FCC thing, that's that's probably more to keep you in line. 
versus me. Uh, well, I, I don't <laughs> deny that. I do not deny that. That's right. Because I, I'm going to express myself. I do want to say this. Um, the uh, when was Dan? What Dan Bishop was on your mm-hmm. show or had a. a, a was he on your show all yeah. the time or something? Yeah, he was on, uh, it was a Friday. We had him in studio on Friday. Okay. Um, I, from my understanding, it didn't go very well. Uh, <laughs> and I can understand why. Why didn't it go uh, very well? Well, you know, I know how he got there. And we all know that. And, and that how he, wait, how he got into the studio? The only, the only... The only body who got the, the, the steel was the the ninth district. Um, well, but he didn't. Yeah, but and, right, so you're saying he the only way he got into office was was uh, because of the the shenanigans in the ninth district. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I, absolutely. I, I think everybody in 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 North Carolina was a candidate for the ninth district. Right. Uh, well, not everybody. It, it, yeah. it appeared at the time. I, yeah. I, I, people I never heard of and, and never will hear about with, with planning on, with thinking about running for the ninth district because it was, it was wide open. Right. And But he uh, did win that fair and square. He won very convincingly after Mark Harris bowed out. Well, yeah. Uh, well, there were two elections. One mm-hmm. that, 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 and then he decided he was not going to run again. Right. Choice. Um, but it, it was, it was not, uh, your normal everyday district, uh, uh election. It was, it was, it was drastically changed when the harvesting of those ballots were discovered down in, I think it was Bladen County. Right. Well, that was, but that was when Harris was running. Yes. Versus McCready. And then when Harris bowed McCready, out, they McCready did the election ran, again. And, and then uh, they, they had to run again because right. it was a something, uh, counting right. issue. Yeah, it was over McCray Dallas and the, uh, the ballot harvesting operation that he was right. running. Uh, he has now since passed away. Uh, so I guess we will never find out to what extent he actually influenced the outcome. But there were obvious, I mean, to me, it looked like there were shenanigans afoot. And honestly, uh, that's been the rumor out of Robinson and Bladen County for a very, very long time, for years and years and years. Uh, and Republicans started playing the game. And so and they got caught. Uh, now, that being said, that 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 didn't really have anything to do with Dan Bishop, per se. I mean, he got the avenue to run for the office yeah. because of that. Yeah. But. He still won well, his election. I'm, I'm pretty familiar with Dan. But I mean, I've known about him. I've been involved in politics. Yeah. Well, it's part of my DNA. I know him from the 77 issues, the, the toll road, all of that crap. I, mm-hmm. I, I just look, I, I will say this. I know who he is. I know who he isn't. And I do not in any way would even consider voting for that man. Okay. Under, under any circumstances. Okay. So I, yeah, I just wanted to say that. I'm sorry I missed the the opportunity to, uh, you know, because he's not going to show himself. I, unfortunately, we live in the ninth district or eighth district now, whatever the heck it is. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, the man has he, he he's never been here. <laughs> I've never seen him. I've never even known that he was in the area. Well, have you? Um, 
and 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 I've been pretty active in in. Um, I mean, he does events. He um, well, yeah. I mean, I, I look. I'm not here to. T- I'm not here to go over Dan Dan Bishop's I, I schedule. Know, I, know, I don't I know why. Yeah, I don't know what you what you know about him that you say you would never vote for him. I don't know what without exploring more of that. But we're, we've kind of run uh, down a couple different I, 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 paths here. Republican Party. I'm not. I don't vote for any of them anymore until they decide that they're going to decide to be uh, a. a, a a political party that is going to be contributing to instead of standing against everything. So okay. I'm just, you know, I'm done right now until uh, things straighten up a little bit. And right now I don't see that happening. Well, that's fine. But Kevin, I would just say this, uh, nothing ever changes if you don't get involved. Oh, I'm involved. I'm okay. Involved. All right. I was involved in the uh, McCready uh, thing. I was involved in that. Both okay. my wife and I both were involved in that, and we intend to get involved. As, as we, well, we already are in this okay. uh, election cycle. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. always involved. All right. Well, Kevin, I got to run. I appreciate the call. Good to hear from I, you, sir. I just, yeah, I, I, I'm glad you got back in Charlotte. I know you wanted to get back down this way, and I'm glad you accomplished that. I wish you all the luck in the world. Um, and yeah, maybe sometime we can get together. We did before and drink a beer or twenty. Not right. Well, that's a, that'll be on you. You're gonna. Do, I wish you the best. I appreciate it, Kevin. The the twenty beers will be your. That's your heavy lift. That's. Uh, because I don't drink the beers anymore just because of the uh, the Ph.D. weight loss and all. But uh, thank you, Calvin. It was good to talk with you again. Appreciate it. Like my necktie? It's brand new. Anyway. All righty. So the percent of U.S. college students majoring in the humanities has crashed since 2010. Did you know that? thought this was interesting. You look at philosophy, area studies, languages and literature, general, history, English, religion. These are your subjects. And since 2010, this is just it's just the number of kids majoring in these fields has been declining. Oh, except for one of them, philosophy. I found this interesting. And this is not in the research that Noah Smith goes over at his um uh, his Substack piece uh he just says they're all cratering except for philosophy. But I, I wonder if this, um, I wonder if there's some search for meaning occurring there. Because I, I, I was a philosophy minor, as a political science and philosophy minor, two different minors. I had enough credits for both, but they wouldn't give me both of them on my degree, so I had to pick one. I'm not bitter, so the kind of yeah, a little bit. Anyway, so I think what I wonder if this, if there's some sort of search for meaning occurring. And that's why people are taking, I mean, of all, of all the degrees, why would philosophy be rebounding, right, <laughs> versus, say, religion? Religion is at the bottom. Very few, very few uh, majors in the religion realm. So are they searching for meaning, but they don't want to get it from religion? Is that what's happening there? Anyway, he goes on to say there are now almost as many people majoring in computer science as in all the humanities put together. Science, just a general category of science, is far above all the humanities. And then, uh, did you know that? You would think, just listening to the current debate about all things higher ed, that that's not the case. But it is. When you look at the data, it becomes very apparent why the shift is happening. College kids increasingly want majors that will lead them directly to secure and or 
high-paying jobs, right? That's why STEM and medical fields, and to a lesser degree, blue-collar job-focused fields like hospitality, that's why they have been on the rise. You look back at the big bump of humanities majors, it started in like the 2000s and early 2010s, and thinking about the social unrest America has experienced over the last eight years, he says it makes me think about a guy named Peter Turchin's theory of elite overproduction. Basically, the idea here is that uh, America produced a lot of highly educated people with great expectations for their place in society. But our economic and social system was not able to accommodate a lot of those expectations, which then caused them to turn to leftist politics and other disruptive actions because they were frustrated and disappointed. It's called elite overproduction theory. I think a good candidate, he says this is a good can- this theory is a good candidate for explaining at least some of the unrest and in particular the resurgence of leftist politics that we have seen in the US recently. Think Bernie Sanders, right? Keep in mind, so I'm not sure how much of the last decade it really explains, but I think it's plausible enough to deserve serious thought. So if you graduated with a degree in English or history and it's the year 2006, what do you do with that degree? If you want a, a stable and secure, prestigious, high-paying job, what do you do with a history degree or an English degree? You go to law school, be a lawyer. If you want to live on the East Coast, you want to work in, uh, in an industry with a romantic reputation, maybe you choose media or publishing. If you wanted intellectual stimulation and prestige, you go for academia, Right. If you just want security and stability, you don't care that much about money or glamour, well, you could be a K-12 through teacher or you go work for the government. But in the years after the Great Recession, every one of those career paths became more difficult. Starting around 1970, there was a massive boom in the number of lawyers per capita. And then uh, shortly followed after that was the boom in lawyer jokes. That was directly related. Um... By the turn of the century, though, it had started to level off. So around uh, it's the number of uh, attorneys per capita goes skyrocketing in 1970, roughly late 60s, early 70s. And then it starts to plateau right around the Great Recession. He goes on to say that uh, publishing, that industry suffered from the Great Recession, but it was probably in long term decline before that. And then the Internet, of course, digital publishing is growing, but it's not likely to make up for the devastation of newsrooms and books and magazines. Tenure track hiring in the humanities in higher education after the Great Recession, that also went into decline. Right. So what happens is you have this entire class of student, these people that are coming out of the colleges with these degrees and the debt. And they're like, wait a minute, we have an expectation. We're not getting it. That's not reality. Now we're disappointed. Yay, leftism.